Parents, if you have children with you this morning, they're ages three to seven. If you would like them to participate in Children's Church, we have a a wonderful program next door uh, for those children. If you have children under the age of three, there are nurseries next door as well. If you need to use those, please feel free to do so at any time during the remainder of the service. The rest of you, I'm going to ask to take your Bible if you have them. If not, there's some in the pew in front of you and turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts chapter one. When you found your place in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to hear the word of the Lord read together. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would fulfill your promise to us to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Spirit of God, we call on you once again to be the teacher this morning. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear our minds and hearts, to understand the truth that you seek to to use to transform us this morning. So we offer ourselves to you now as we come to your word, teach us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you all want to ask you to look with me again in verse 3 of this passage. We read there that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This verse communicates that the God who created each one of us knows us. Psalm 103 says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. And one thing the Lord knows about all of us as people that he formed is that we are doubters. We're doubters. And you and I are doubters because we are finite and limited in what we can understand and what we can explain. How do we arrive at truth? If the scientist posits at the beginning of his or research before their exploration begins, that there is no God, and that whatever they discover must be explained in some other way than God, will they ever arrive at truth? Will Christians who say, I believe in God, ever discover truth if they reject the claims and the discoveries of science? Don't forget that scientists were once put to death by Christians for saying the world was round and not flat, for saying that the sun and not the earth was the center of the universe. Now, all truth, wherever truth is found, wherever truth is discovered, it belongs to God. 
we are limited by our own preconceptions because you and I, none of us, can ever come with a blank slate. And so what we have to do is to lay aside our preconceived ideas and open ourselves up to truth. Truth that may be beyond our ability to explain. Truth that may be beyond our human ability to understand. God is infinite. He's unlimited. God is beyond the microscope. He's beyond the telescope. He's beyond the laboratory. And the work of an infinite, limitless God is as it should be if he is a limitless and infinite God beyond our human explanation, beyond our ability to capture and test. And so how wonderful it is of Jesus here in the passage this morning that he gives us what we need. He tells us what we could not figure out on our own. He gave the disciples many convincing proofs that he was alive. Because it was vital. It was vital that the disciples understand and be convinced of the truth of the resurrection. Because the resurrection was vital to everything they would become. It was vital to everything they would do. And so Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance, this is it. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul continues writing in that chapter, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied, pitied more than all men. But... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. See, God could have kept the resurrection a secret. He could have brought Jesus back to life and never told a soul. He could have given no convincing proofs. And still Christ's sacrifice would have been sufficient to pay the price of all of our sins. Still Christ's sacrifice would have been sufficient to gain for you and me an entrance into the presence of God But God wants us to know the truth of the resurrection. That we might have hope and give hope. That we might have faith and give faith. That you and I might have love and give love. And so knowing how vital the resurrection is, Jesus gives his disciples, his followers, not just one or two, but this verse says he gives them many convincing proofs. And convincing proof just means means just that, no fancy Greek. It just means to convince someone in a decisive manner. It's it's evidence that would hold up in court that this man who was dead is now alive. More than 500 people could testify to that fact. You know, in a court of law, we're watching Perry Mason, I don't know, maybe we're watching Matlock. 
You get two or three witnesses come in, they tell exactly the same story. Then a fourth comes in. Then a fifth comes in. Tell them the same story. If I was enough, enough already, we get it. Well, but what about 27 and 72 and 112 and 287 and 300 up to 500 people telling the exact same story? This man who is dead is alive. We have seen him. Many of whom who were still alive when the New Testament was written and could say otherwise if it had not happened. You know, we in the 21st century, we think, well, it's just lucky of Jesus that he didn't try to pull this over on us. Lucky for Jesus that he picked people who were so ignorant and backwater that they would be deceived in believing this whole story. Because we assume that in the pre-scientific age, there would be no struggle for a person to believe that another person had come back from the dead, as if it happened all the time. You know, how condescending of us. We look at the pyramids and we say, how did they do that? How did they do that? We still can't figure it out. It was no easier for the people then to believe in the resurrection than it is for us today. It was just as unexpected for them as it is for us today. Listen, the the Greek world, the Roman world, they didn't believe in a resurrection at all. They believed that everything material was evil. And so when the soul was finally released from the body and set free, who would want the body back? No one. Greeks or Romans would have never told a resurrection story like this. The Jews, on the other hand, did believe in the resurrection. They believed that the body was good, and they believed that one day God would renew and restore all things, but they believed in one resurrection that would occur at the end of time, when everyone together was resurrected, and when all things were made new, and when there was no more sickness or sorrow or suffering, they never had a conception that one person would be resurrected right in the middle of it all, and that that person would keep on living in a world of sin and sickness and sorrow. So neither the Greeks, nor the Romans, nor the Jews would have concocted a resurrection story. They didn't concoct it because it, it really, truly happened. Jesus gave them many proofs. He appeared to them. He ate with them in their presence. He said, here, put your finger, put your finger in the scar where the nail went. Here, put your finger in, in the scar where the Roman sword pierced my body to make sure I was dead. Go ahead, test it. It's me. Matthew 28 says the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And, and when they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted, even while they worshiped the Lord, they questioned, can this really, truly be the resurrected Lord? Yes, it is, but it's so hard to believe. So at no time in history has it been easy to believe. God designed people, humans, from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, to have the ability to look around at the natural world around them and see the order and the regularity of it. The order, the regularity of the seasons. And so God knows when something happens out of the ordinary, something that isn't normal, something that isn't regular, that it's difficult to believe. And so the Lord gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. The question is, who was the proof for? Who was the proof for? Verse 3 tells us that that Jesus appeared, the resurrection, resurrected Jesus appeared over the the course of, of 40 days. So we have to put all the Gospels together and some of the writing of Paul uh, to figure out what all of those appearances were. We know that 
Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. We know that he appeared to the group of three women who were making their way to the tomb on that very first Easter morning when it was still dark. In fact, women were the first to ever have the privilege. It was women who first preached the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first gospel tellers were women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the evening of the day of his resurrection. He appeared to the disciples on the evening of the day of his resurrection. A week later, he appeared to the disciples again. Later, he appeared to them on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, and he cooked breakfast for them and said, come and and eat it. As we heard earlier, he appeared to more than 500 people. He appeared to James. He appeared to the disciples a final time, and then he was taken up to heaven. What did you notice about these appearances? All of these appearances were for believers. Every appearance recorded in Scripture was for believers, not unbelievers. For people who, while Jesus walked on this earth, responded to the truth of Jesus. They responded in faith. They responded in love, though their understanding was not perfect. Though they often didn't get it right. And by it, I mean who Jesus was. They didn't really get it. Or what Jesus had come to do, they didn't really get it. And sometimes their loyalty and their devotion was full of zeal. Lord, said James and John, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this village because they refused to welcome you? Then sometimes that devotion was full of dispiritedness. When they arrested Jesus in the garden, everyone deserted him and fled. Sometimes their faith was strong. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Other times their faith was weak and wavering. I I never knew. I never knew that man, Jesus. But always there was love for the Lord. Love that was imperfect. Love that was conditional. But nonetheless, love. They responded in imperfect faith. And they responded in imperfect love. But Jesus can work with that. Isn't that good news for us? As Jesus said to them on more than one occasion, whoever has will be given more. The one who has faith will be given more faith. The one who has love will be given more love. Is that not good news for us? We respond in faith, even when our faith is weak and barely there, and the Lord gives us more faith. We respond in love, even when our love is weak and so conditional, and the Lord gives us more love. And That's why Jesus appears to those who believed in him and loved him while he was with them. The resurrection and the proof of it is to convince them so that they could get on with the work that Jesus had given them to do, which was to change the world. They couldn't do that work that they were called to do. If they weren't convinced, if they weren't certain that he was alive, if they had not seen it with their own eyes and been absolutely convinced, then they may want to give up because of what they were not ever going to get. They weren't going to build their own personal empire. They weren't going to sit on thrones. They weren't going to experience great financial gain. 
They weren't going to get a new state-of-the-art building in downtown Jerusalem to house the new Jesus People International headquarters. And Peter and James and John were not going to get corner offices in that building. There was to be no gain of that kind for them. You know, the payoff is what usually motivates people, motivates us. You know, what's the financial payoff for us if we do that? that that's important to us. What's the, the physical payoff or the health payoff if we exercise? Or maybe there is a pleasure payoff that motivates us to do the things that we do. But Christianity didn't give the disciples any hope for any of that kind of payoff. What happened? Persecution broke out for the believers. Poverty marked their lives. Their businesses were boycotted and shut down. The Apostle Paul had to take up a collection from other churches to send to the church in Jerusalem because the believers there were suffering so for their faith. Paul writes his own experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. So this is kind of a hard sell, don't you think? For something that isn't real? Where is the tangible payoff to which you can point? Why believe something that isn't true if it's going to be so devastating to your life and to your family if it isn't true? Will you believe it? Because the resurrection is real. Jesus is alive. He proved it. The disciples knew it. They saw it with their own eyes. What I offer you this morning is not laboratory proof. But knowing human nature as we know it, knowing your own nature as you know yourself, this that we see in the disciples points to something real, something worth hanging on to, something worth living for, something worth dying for. You know, people love a good story. And you and I will invest, invest valuable resources and time for the sake of a good story. I just tallied up the box office for a few movies. Captain America, 12 Years a Slave, Noah, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, why not? Saving Mr. Banks and The Hunger Games. And the total box office, $913 million. Can you believe it? Almost a billion dollars we spend because we love stories so much. If this were a story that we're reading, that were made up by a human, it could have been told in a way that would have been a lot more satisfying for people like us who love stories so much. For example, where in this story is the revenge element? You know, Pilate, the governor, the one who knew that Jesus was innocent and that there was no real reason to crucify him, he saw that a, that a mob, that a riot was developing, and so he sent for a bowl of water, 
And he washed his hands before the crowd and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is your responsibility. And so he turned Jesus over to be crucified and washed his hands of the whole situation. So if we were telling the story, filming the movie, can't you see a, a scene a few days later? Pilate is in his lavish washroom and he's washing his hands and he's looking at himself in the mirror and a little too much product. Oh, that's me today. And so he's washing his hands, he looks up and then he looks down quickly at his hands and he looks up again and he sees in the mirror the reflection of Jesus standing behind him. Where did he come from? How did he get here? And Jesus says to him, Hello, Pilate. Yeah, that hand-washing thing, let's talk about that a little bit. You really shouldn't have done what you did to me. Then Jesus could have zapped him or something like that. It would have been a great story. And we would have loved that. We would have been so happy because that bad, bad pilot got what was coming to him. He, he, he didn't appear to Caiaphas, the high priest who led the way in having Jesus put to death. He could have appeared to, to Caiaphas when he was dressed in, in his regal priestly robes, standing at the offer, offering sacrifices. Jesus could have come up behind him. Hello, Caiaphas. <laughs> yeah, that sacrifice thing. How about we mingle some of your blood with that blood? That would have been satisfying to us. But Jesus didn't appear to those who struck him or spit on him or pulled out his beard or crowned him with thorns or lashed him with a whip or nailed him to a cross. He didn't appear for revenge. He didn't say, you shouldn't have done that. See, I told you who I was. It's terribly unsatisfying for people like you and me who like a a really great story with a great ending. The bad guys get away with it. Or at least they think they do. No, if we were making up this story to try to get people to follow your guy, you're writing this story, you want people to follow him, you want to say, look how powerful he is. And look what he does to people who get in his way, who try to stop him. That story that we are reading this morning, it, it has the ring of truth. Uh, did you see the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Anybody see the movie Saving Mr. Banks? It is the movie about Walt Disney making the movie Mary Poppins. And there was a lot of talk that, that movie was going to receive a lot of Academy Awards. The, the acting in it was, uh, was outstanding. But the movie didn't receive those anticipated awards. And so I read one explanation for why the movie didn't receive those awards. It's because too many people, at least one reason, too many people in the movie industry still remembered the real Walt Disney. Or they had story, heard stories about the real Walt Disney. And apparently the real Walt Disney wasn't nearly as nice and friendly and kind as he was portrayed to be in the movie. One critic called the movie the Disney version of Disney. <laughs> But of course, when the Disney studio makes a movie about the studio's founder, what are they going to do? They're going to show only the good and leave out all of the bad. And that's what any of us would want in a story told about us. But not the disciples. When they tell their story, 
They tell it like it is. For instance, they don't record in the Gospels that when the women came to them that first Easter morning and said, he's alive, he's alive, that they said, of course, silly women. Don't you remember? He said to us, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Of course, he was talking about his body. We knew that. We are men of faith. They could have written that story. But what did they do? They tell the truth. They told what really happened. The women came to them. They told of the resurrection. And it says, they did not believe the women because the women's words seemed to them like nonsense. The disciples told on themselves. Even we believed that the resurrection was nonsense. Thomas, poor Thomas, all these years, what's he called? Doubting Thomas. Because he wouldn't believe. He wouldn't believe his best friends. He had to see it for himself. They told these stories on themselves because it is a true story. I know that many Christians see Easter Sunday today. Look at all y'all. And they see this as a Sunday to really preach the gospel. You know, maybe the preacher will convince someone who didn't believe. Or maybe this is the year that you will finally reach a Christer. You know what a Christer is? It's the person who only comes to church at Christmas and Easter. Christer, okay? Two times a year. This is going to be the year of the Christer. But the convincing proofs of his resurrection were for those who believed. They are for us who believe. Listen, you guys, this is our moment. Our moment to celebrate. Do you feel like celebrating? Our moment to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. If there are unbelievers here this morning, if there are priesters here, forgive me, please. But we're glad that you're here. We're glad you're here, but you're joining us in our celebration. This proof was not for those who don't believe. Because you know what? Those who don't believe will not believe no matter what they see. The tomb was empty, everyone knew it, and what was the response of those who put him to death? When the Roman guards came and said, we were guarding that tomb, but the body is gone. Did the chief priest say, oh, we believe, we believe, we're sorry, we believe. What did they do? You must say, Jesus came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole the body. And if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get in trouble. And certainly they would have gotten in trouble. They would have been put to death for falling asleep on their guard. And so the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Jesus had appeared in person to the chief priests. What might they have said? Well, he wasn't really alive. I mean, he wasn't really dead. He wasn't really dead. The disciples took him down off of the cross before he died. And yet, broken and bleeding and wounded, three days later, he was the picture of health. No, the proof is for the believers. To strengthen their faith, miracles do not produce love. Miracles do not produce faith. They merely strengthen the love and the faith already present. As much as you and I would like Jesus to build the church, how much easier it would be for us, we think, if he would build it on wonder and amazement of the miraculous, he doesn't. That's not how Jesus builds the church. We celebrate the resurrection this morning. We tell again the story of the empty tomb and of the appearances of the resurrected Lord to strengthen our faith so that we, like the disciples, will be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. So that you and I will be prepared when the going gets rough to do what He has called us to do. And what has He called us to do? Change the world. 
Really? That's what we're called to do, to change the world. And that's why Jesus gave the disciples many convincing proofs, because that's what exactly what he was calling them to do and empowering them to do. N.T. Wright says this, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love has won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that he will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over all. And that's what the disciples, what the apostles did. They went to Thessalonica, the city, and the men there said, these men, these gospel preachers have turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down and now they've come to our city to do the same thing. And they tried to stop the gospel, but they couldn't. So what do we read about later? After the gospel had taken hold in Thessalonica, after the gospel had burst forth and the church was throbbing, what do we read in the letter to the Thessalonians? Paul writes, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The world knows how you have turned from idols to serve the true and living God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Romans, way over in the city of Rome, Paul writes of them, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Lives changed. People made whole. Families made whole. Slaves set free. The hungry fed. The naked clothed. The homeless sheltered. Because the resurrection is real. Along with its power. Those who have plenty are given purpose in their life as they finally come to understand that all the blessings of God on them are to, to, to pass on to other people. The resurrection is for us. To strengthen us. To encourage us to catapult us out of ourselves and into the world as you and I tell others this life-changing good news of a resurrected Savior of which we are convinced. And so where is the convincing proof in your life that you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? I know there's proof there. Where's the proof that you believe? Where's the evidence? And how much of it is there in your life, that you believe that the same power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is, as Scripture says, at work in you and me. The same power that raised Christ from the dead at work in you and me. Jesus wants his resurrection to give us peace this morning. When he said it is finished, to believe it is finished. He's done everything that needs to be done for your salvation and for mine. He's done everything that needs to be done to gain you and me 
and entrance into the presence of God, both now and for all eternity. So be at peace. Be at peace. Be at peace. Rejoice in the security that you have in Christ. But invest that resurrection power in you by doing something to bring someone to Christ, by doing something to change the world, even in a small way for Christ. Because if we believe, this is what we will do. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. This morning, we celebrate again the the reality of your resurrection. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to give us what we need. We need proof. You offered proof. So, Father, may we right now be as convinced as the disciples were 2,000 years ago of the miracle of your resurrection. It's beyond explanation, Lord. We've never seen it happen, that that one who was dead came back to life never, ever to die again. So your resurrection, Lord, is unique in human history. Lord, it's real, it's true, we believe it. You gave proof of it. And so now, Lord, I ask that we would live in the light and the confidence and the hope that's ours because you are a risen Savior. Father, I pray that we would receive and rest uh, in your promises and what you've done for us. We'd be confident people because we are your children. You know us and you love us. But Lord, make us bold people as well. Remind us the resurrection isn't just all about us and our little personal experience with you. It's about using what you've given us, gifts, times, talents, to get out into the world, Lord, and tell others the good news of the gospel of the resurrected Savior. Change the world through us, really, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.